From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. What happened to Harold Ensler and Nancy Bellamy? They were alive and well one minute and gone without a trace the next. Did they pack their things and flee the state? Were they hiding from the authorities? Or did someone murder Harold and Nancy and dispose of their bodies in a way so the troopers would never find them? Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Drug-related crimes are something I usually shy away from. I don't want to write and podcast about a drug deal gone bad, but if I did, I would have an endless supply of material. Like most places in the U.S., Alaska has a severe drug problem. Over the years, the drugs have changed, but the problem has remained. From the smallest villages to the largest cities, drugs infiltrate the state, and most violent crime in the state stems from drug and alcohol abuse. I am not trying to avoid the reality of drugs in our communities. Still, I can't bring myself to write a story about one drug dealer shooting another, and I would probably have trouble putting together more than a few paragraphs about such a crime. Nearly everyone in the following story abused drugs, and most also sold drugs. However, it is uncertain whether the murders covered in this story had anything to do with drugs. Did Billy Dean Smith murder Harold Insler and Nancy Bellamy to protect his girlfriend's interest in her custody battle? Because he hated Nancy Bellamy? Or because he believed Harold and Nancy were informants reporting on his drug activity to the authorities. Billy Dean Smith won't answer this question because he claims he is innocent of the murders, despite his confession to the troopers. You be the judge and decide why Smith committed this heinous crime and gruesome cover-up. The town of Kenai sits three hours southwest of Anchorage on the Kenai Peninsula. In the summer, the glacier-fed waters of the Kenai River teem with salmon, and eager anglers line the banks hoping to catch a member of one of the four species of salmon returning to the river to spawn. Cook Inlet stretches from the Gulf of Alaska to Anchorage and has depths as deep as 696 feet. On March 27, 1994, Harold Insler, 36, and his girlfriend Nancy Bellamy, 42, left Insler's parents' house in Nikiski on the Kenai Peninsula around 9 p.m. The couple was never seen alive again. No one reported them missing until May 16, 1994, when Insler's attorney called the troopers. 
Troopers had their suspicions about the fate of Ensler and Bellamy, but because they could not find their bodies, they had no proof of a crime. Harold Ensler and his former wife Michelle, or Mimi, were going through a divorce and were embroiled in a bitter custody battle over their young son. In August 1993, Harold and Mimi filed restraining orders against each other in the Homer court. Harold Ensler's order claimed that Mimi's boyfriend had put a gun to his head while Harold was visiting his son. Mimi's order claimed that her boyfriend, Billy Dean Smith, used the gun to keep her husband from taking her son because she feared her husband was using drugs. Ensler fought for custody of the son he shared with Mimi. He told the judge that Smith was a drug user and that he did not want his son to live in the same house Mimi shared with Smith. Even though Ensler also used drugs, the judge awarded him joint custody with Mimi of their son. Mimi was unhappy with the news, and a week after the judge handed down the decision, Ensler and Bellamy disappeared. Troopers suspected someone had murdered Harold Ensler and Nancy Bellamy. Since Ensler was involved in the drug trade, the troopers had a list of possible killers, but Billy Dean Smith was at the top of their list. Over the next three years, Billy Dean Smith came and went from the Anchorage International Airport, often smuggling cocaine from the lower 48 to the Kenai Peninsula, where he sold it. After many trips back and forth, Smith no longer feared detection. He carefully hid the cocaine in his suitcase, and no one ever questioned him. Everything changed on August 14, 1997. Smith arrived at the Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport on a flight from Seattle. He headed through the terminal to the ERA commuter gates, where he planned to catch the short flight to Kenai. Partway to his destination, a hand clamped down on his arm, and a man said, Mr. Smith, will you come with us? Two uniformed Anchorage police officers escorted Smith to a small back office in the airport. Smith's suitcase sat on a table in the office. Smith's hands began to shake when a police officer told Smith to open the suitcase. Beneath the underwear and socks, the police uncovered a pound of cocaine. The police officer swiftly handcuffed Smith, arrested him for drug possession, and took him to jail. Smith knew the drug charges were not his only problem. He dealt cocaine, but his drug of choice was heroin and soon he would begin going through withdrawal if he did not get another fix. Smith sent a message to the Kenai police saying he was willing to share information about drug activities on the Kenai Peninsula. He claimed he would work for them as an informant if they could get him released from prison. On August 29, 1997, Kenai Police Sergeant Chuck Kopp and Alaska State Trooper Investigators Ron Belden and Chuck Bartoloni met with Smith at Alaska Judicial Services in Anchorage. They recorded the interview. Most of the interview is hard to follow. 
Smith rambles and frequently changes topics, often talking about his strict religious upbringing. The authorities soon learned he had nothing of value to offer them, so they began asking him questions about the murders of Insler and Bellamy. This is where Smith's version of events varies from that of the police and the recorded interview. Smith later claimed he had believed the police would release him if he came clean on some of his crimes. He said they coerced a false confession because he would have done or said anything to get out of prison and find a heroin fix. The authorities did use typical psychological tactics in their interview. They pretended to know things they didn't know. They offered him sympathy and said they knew he might have reasons to kill Insler and Bellamy. They encouraged him to get right with God and confess. However, they did not tell him they would release him from jail if he admitted to a double murder. It did not take too much urging from the authorities before Smith confessed to the murders. He confessed again a few days later and even took the authorities to the Kenai Peninsula and pointed out where the murders had occurred. He also showed them where he had disposed of the evidence, including the unnamed lake where he said he threw the gun after the murders. According to Smith's confession, on March 27, 1994, he and two accomplices lured Ensler and Bellamy to the emergency escape route. Since only one highway links Kenai to Anchorage, this emergency access road was initially built as an alternative way off the Kenai Peninsula in the event of an earthquake or tsunami. The road has never been needed for this purpose and has become a place to dump old cars, buy our guns, and buy and sell drugs. Smith said his friend Bruce Brown called Insler and told Insler he would front him drugs to sell. Insler could then pay Brown after the drugs were sold. He told Insler that he would drive him to where he'd stash the drugs. Brown then drove Insler and Bellamy in Insler's truck to the emergency escape route, where Smith was waiting for them. Smith said that soon after the couple arrived, he approached the truck and shot them four times with a Glock 9mm semi-automatic pistol. Smith said he and his accomplices stashed Insler's truck in another friend's garage and cut it up with an acetylene torch. He hid the bodies in the woods for a few days and then cut them into pieces with a double-edged axe. He put the pieces in black garbage bags, and he and his friend, Dennis Ray J. Johnson, placed the bags in his boat. The pair then motored out onto Cook Inlet. They tied fishing weights to the bags containing the body parts and threw them overboard. Let me take a break for a moment. The audiobook of my novel, Carlic Bones, is now available. This is an excerpt from the audio version read by Beth Chaplin. I curled into a ball in my sleeping bag, and I thought I heard someone call my name. I must have fallen asleep again and started dreaming. A few minutes later, I again heard a male voice yell my name. The voice sounded closer, but I couldn't identify it. 
I crawled from my bag and pulled on my extra tough boots. I unzipped my tent flap, climbed through the opening, and stood alert. After a few minutes, I heard breaking brush. Did Jeff fly out here to check on me? I remembered the plane landing earlier, but the man who'd called my name didn't sound like Jeff. A man walked out of the brush fifty yards in front of me. I'd never seen him before. Are you Jane? Yes, I said. The man was probably in his late sixties or early seventies, but he looked thin and fit. As he neared me, I saw the smile on his face. He seemed friendly, but I felt vulnerable. I'd left my rifle in my tent and now considered scrambling back into the tent to grab it. Instead of following my instincts, though, I stood motionless and watched the man advance. When he got within thirty yards of me, he lifted what I'd thought was a sturdy walking stick and pointed the end of it at me. Stay right there, he said, and leveled the rifle at my stomach. My heart slammed in my chest. Who is this guy? Do you know who I am? He asked, as if reading my mind. This audiobook of Carlic Bones is available on audible.com or at amazon.com. Check the show notes for a link. Smith claimed he'd murdered Insler and Bellamy partly on behalf of his girlfriend so she would not have to share her son with Insler under a joint custody agreement, and partly because he disliked Bellamy and feared she and Insler would tell the authorities about his drug dealing. Prosecutors charged Billy Dean Smith with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Harold Insler and Nancy Bellamy. He was also eventually charged with two counts of destroying evidence for cutting up and hiding the pieces of Insler's truck and for disposing of the two bodies. Prosecutor John Wolfe knew he had a tough case. No one had found a murder weapon or any bodies to prove Insler and Bellamy were dead. He would have little evidence to prove his case without Smith's two taped confessions and the testimony from his two accomplices, Ray J. Johnson and Bruce Bram. Smith recanted his confession, but the judge allowed the two taped interviews into evidence over the repeated objections of Smith's attorney, Robert Hertz. Hertz maintained that the authorities questioning Smith had coerced his false confession while Smith was detoxing from heroin. Ray J. and Bruce Brown were initially charged with two counts of first-degree murder and tampering with evidence, but the state dropped the murder charges when the two agreed to testify against Smith. The trial for Billy Dean Smith began in September 2002. Ray J. Johnson, a gruff man with a gravelly voice, testified that he had used an acetylene torch to cut up Insler's green 1974 Dodge flatbed pickup to help Smith dispose of what was essentially the scene of the murder. They then spread pieces of the trucks around the Kenai region. Ray J. also said that after Smith chopped up the bodies with an axe, he helped Billy dump the bodies in Cook Inlet. The pair then planned on fishing, but they'd used all their fishing weights to sink the body parts. 
Two weeks into the trial, Wolf put Bruce Brown, Smith's other accomplice, on the stand, and Brown told the jury he had undergone a lie detector test as part of his plea deal. Results of a polygraph test are not admissible as evidence in Alaska because they are considered unreliable. Smith's attorney, Robert Hertz, immediately objected to the testimony and told the judge he felt the jurors would believe that if a person took a lie detector test and passed it, then the person could be considered truthful. Hertz hoped to discredit the testimony of Ray J. and Brown and then suggest it was one of them, not Smith, who had shot Insler and Bellamy. Hertz said the testimony about the lie detector test damaged his case, and he wanted a mistrial. In truth, Brown had failed parts of the polygraph test, but the jury did not know this. Judge Link considered the matter, but he could not think of any suitable jury instructions to help them ignore the statement about the polygraph. He reluctantly declared a mistrial. Due to the local in-depth news coverage about the trial, Judge Link decided another impartial jury could not be found in Kenai, so he moved the second trial to Anchorage, and it started in early October 2002. The second trial was much the same as the first, with both Ray J. and Bruce Brown testifying. The jury sat through Smith's interview tapes, where he matter-of-factly described killing Insler and Bellamy and then detailed how he'd cut up their bodies and drop them into the ocean. Meanwhile, Attorney Hertz did his best to cast doubt on the testimony of Ray J. and Brown, telling the jury that either Ray J. or Brown killed the couple. He said Smith had confessed because he was under duress and lured by the false promise of the police to release him from jail. On October 31st, Judge Link was forced to declare a mistrial. After deliberating for seven days, the jury found Smith guilty of the tampering with evidence charges, but they could not reach a verdict on the murder charges. Some jurors believed either Ray J. or Brown could have been the killer. Wolf and his prosecution team remained undeterred. They knew Smith's confession was good, and they had no doubt he had committed the murders. They brought him to trial a third time on the murder charges. Billy Dean Smith's third trial began on January 16, 2003. Hertz again told the jury that the police had coerced Smith to confess, and Prosecutor Wolf countered that Smith confessed because his conscience was eating at him. The third jury deliberated for four days, and on February 11th, they returned a verdict of guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. A month after the trial ended and before the sentencing phase, Alaska Superior Court Judge Jonathan H. Link became seriously ill. He died on March 25, 2003, at the age of 59. Superior Court Judge Elaine Andrews took over the case and moved the sentencing hearing to June 20th to give her time to educate herself on the case. 
After considering the facts, Judge Andrews sentenced Smith to two consecutive sentences of 60 years imprisonment on each of the two murder counts and four years on each of the two counts of tampering with physical evidence. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. If you haven't already done it, be sure to join the Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier Facebook group and chat about the podcast. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.